metal lunatics. This is John Gallagher from Raven, and you are listening to Focus on Metal! Hey, Metalheads, Scott here. And Richie. Welcoming you to another episode of Focus on Metal and another episode of our Kerrang! Project as we bring you Kerrang! Episode number three with Stefan Shirazi. Another one that uh, that Richie hooked up and also uh, delivered to us with uh, some quite masterful questions. So uh, good job on this. Yeah, thanks. Um, a lot of people might know Stefan now as uh, the guy who works for Metallica. Yeah, does all the so fan what, club stuff. And yeah, yeah. yeah. But... Um, he worked for Kerrang! from 80, I'm going to say 84 to 99, yeah. on and off as a freelance guy. Yeah. And um, he, he was only 16 when yeah. he started working, I think, yeah. for Kerrang! But it's interesting, I mean, he was doing crap when he was like 14. Yeah. And the fact that he's still as enthusiastic about it, I mean, you can hear it in his voice. The guy loves what he does. I I want these guys on. All I want is the stories. Yeah, and they've all they all we've had Malcolm on and Xavier yeah. and Stefan, and these guys have stories to beat the band. Like these are the guys that I'd love to go in a pub with uh-huh. and have a few beers yeah. and just sit down for a few hours with them yeah. because I think a lot of this were just tip tip of the iceberg with these guys. Sure. Like, I think a lot of this, these guys would be like a train of thought. All you do is mention this band and off they go. Yeah. And then another band and off they go. But we only have, we had, I think we had like 50 odd minutes with Stefan. Well, he probably could have, would have even gone longer. We probably could have been like three or four hours. Yeah, but we, did, we <laughs> didn't, we didn't really talk about uh, what he's doing now at Metallica that much. Because nope. we didn't nope. have him on for that. We talked a little bit about it. Yeah, but, but we weren't, we, it wasn't the intent. It was correct. Yeah, there was a lot of Metallica in, in the 80s mm-hmm. and a little bit in the 90s. But um, it was all about, yeah, Kerrang! magazine. Yeah. And um, he is another guy with very fond memories of yeah. working there. Yeah. Um, he did most of his work in the U.S., even yeah. though he's from England. Right. Um, so he lived in San Francisco, so he was there for the trash scene and Faint No More, and we get into all that. Yeah. But um, he just had some really, really good stories. Um, very honest. Oh, yeah. Some of the stuff that he got up to was, uh, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> you know, some of the stories. Yeah. Uh, just have you laughing and like yeah. some of the characters and all that but um, yeah just you know another great guy to, to get on yep. and I've yeah. got more people on the list and you know I give you a book of one of them tonight yep. who technically didn't do much for Kerrang but he worked for Sounds before that yep. but you know Stefan mentions who it is at the end of the interview and hopefully it'll all work out with him and you know he, yeah. a lot of praise for him yeah. so um you know, hopefully that'll work out and that'll be the next episode. But I, I've other names anyway, so yeah. Yeah. We'll, I'll see what I can do, you know. Yeah, I mean, we are doing what we said we were going to do, which was try to get them out as almost as soon as we do them. We're putting them out. So, uh, you know, we're, you know, basically four months into the year and, and we're already on the third one. And so we've uh, only done three. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, I, I, don't have, up. I don't have anything banked. Yep. So uh, anyways, great job, Richie, on doing the interview. And uh I think we'll just roll it. Yeah, you got here. Are you going to leave all the soccer stuff in before? Oh no, I took that all out. No, <laughs> we spent we sp- no, here like just 10 we, freaking minutes. Yeah, we spent we spent ten minutes talking about the football, the Premiership in England. There was there was there was, uh, there was about five minutes of Irish geography. Yeah, and then there was about ten minutes of soccer commentary. So yeah, I yeah that's, that's and a lot of swear words. That's that's cut out. So. <laughs> Sorry about that, but um, you're tuning in for the Yeah, but there's lots of good metal. stuff so, after anyways, that, too. Yeah. All right, so let's roll it. Okay. Stefan, are we good? Yeah. Yeah, how you doing? Richie here from Focus on Metal. Good. Nice to talk yeah. to you. How are you? I'm great. Absolutely. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's that, where's that accent from? Which part of Ireland? Uh, Waterford, southeast. Oh, my, my mother is from Wexford. Oh, and right, that it's not too far away, about 30 miles. Uh, uh, 30 it's miles. Not far at all. East, yeah. yeah not far at all. It's all farm country down there, but uh, anyway, so yes, I know the area well, so good, good stuff, but you're not there now. <laughs> no, no, I'm uh, just outside of Boston. Yeah, 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 I see that, yeah, 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 good stuff, yeah, yeah. brilliant. 
Yes. All right. right. So at this point, we skip over the rest of the Irish geography lesson, as well as about 10 minutes worth of premiership soccer talk. And we resume our conversation with Stefan right about here. Let's get into it, Stefan. That's all right. Um, How did you end up working for Kerrang in the first place? So I was uh, 14, let's see, 14 years old, I think, in 1982, 67 to 82. So that's about right. 14 years old. And I wrote to Motorhead's management, this is in 1982, um, asking if Lemmy would do an interview for my school magazine, which was literally four, you know, four sheets of A4 photocopy paper stapled together by myself, my friend and someone else. And we, I think we must have probably made about 20 copies, you know, per okay. edition. So we're not talking about major circulation <laughs> up. <laughs> But, uh, but Motorhead, of course, were riding a massive, you know, massive wave. Even though Iron Fist hadn't been quite as successful, they were still a huge band. Um, and so I got a letter back from their, you know, this is when you typed letters, sent them in. I actually got a letter back from their management saying, let me request your presence at, uh, and there was some studios in London, the names which I can't remember off the top of my head. Let me request your presence at the studio at 7 p.m. on such a date. So I went and he thrust a pint of vodka orange in my hand uh, <laughs> and put me, put me in front of the mixing desk and I was listening to another Perfect Day rough mixes. So I played the whole album and he spent like three, three hours or so was spent there. Filthy came in and I just, I, I thought this was fantastic, greatest thing, right? So, you know, um, that summer, the summer of 83, so this was like the end of 82. So the summer of 83, I called sounds newspaper which um i i, I can't tell how old you are uh, i'm 40 i'm, I'm 40, 45 okay so you're you you remember sounds yeah so sounds music paper i called them uh asking for an internship um uh actually i had said on the phone i wanted to interview alan lewis who was the editor-in-chief at the time and then when i got in the office I said i'll oh, actually a secretary must have got it wrong i'd like an internship if i may and he said okay great so he said let me stick around for the summer and gary bushell let me write a story about motorhead the sounds which was one of those one-sided defenses of a band you'll ever see but he loved it he thought it was great it's like a fan writes um six months after that while i was doing my o levels or maybe maybe it was a little longer it might have been closer to a year after that I uh, got a letter from Sound saying, hey, we remember your internship. Do you want to be our heavy metal freelancer? Um, and so I was. So I didn't get to Kerrang! until 1986. It started with Sounds. I was with Sounds for a couple of years. And the first piece I did for Sounds, um, the first review I ever did was of Ride the Lightning, Metallica's Ride the Lightning. That was a five-star review. And the first time I went on a plane, the first time I did a feature first band I did a feature on was Metallica and that was to go to Paris and uh, 1984, this is all 1984 mm-hmm. so it was a very quick ascent I suddenly started to get getting all these trips and I was, had a heavy metal column in sounds and so on and so forth while I was doing my own A-levels then an editor came in over Jeff Barton who went to Kerrang yeah? yeah. an editor came in um, called Tony Stewart <clears throat> and Tony Stewart came from an enemy background and he sort of changed the way sounds was um he he just uh, i don't know what the problem was he didn't like me he just didn't like me i think he thought i was a stupid kid or something you know i really do and i had long hair and i probably looked like a bit of a twat i don't know but you know i was friendly enough i wasn't malicious in any way but he was he was extremely mean-spirited to me and he was not helpful in any way and he was not encouraging um and, you know, I, I would say extremely unfair. Yeah. Um, so it was only a matter of time, uh, I felt, before he was going to squeeze me out. I mean, he couldn't quite get away with doing it for a variety of reasons. Um, I had a lot of peer support, and I had a couple of really good editors at the time, a uh, reviews editor called Robbie Miller, teachers editor called Sandy Robertson, who were really you know, right behind me. So he couldn't quite kick me out, but I knew he wanted to, and I thought, you know, fuck this, I've got to move to America. So Gary Bushell agreed to give me a journalist visa. He just started working for News Group International, so that was a big deal. 
when Tony Stewart heard about this, he went absolutely apoplectic and was just <laughs> like, how dare you? You should have asked me. I'm your editor. And I plucked up the coach and said, well, Tony, you wouldn't have given me the visa anyway. That, you know, you don't like me, whatever. And he said, well, he went, you could. How could you say that? Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, you're basically sacked me on the spot. Like yeah. freelancers, you can leave. Now, we were in a building that had a corridor that was probably, I mean, I might be exaggerating, but in my, in my memory, the corridor was about the length of two football pitches. I'm sure I'm exaggerating a bit there. But, you know, you'd walk along this long corridor from the back of this building and you'd pass all the other um, magazines in the publishing house, right? Mm. So he had security come and frog march me down this long corridor <laughs> past everyone. It was like the walk of shame, right? Yeah. So I got to the end. I get into the, where the lobby is and Jeff Barton is coming the other way and said, what's going on? And said, Tony Stewart's just given me the tin tack, basically. He said, really? He said, you're moving to America, aren't you? I said, I am. And he said, what, do you want to work for Kareng? I'm like, absolutely. He said, great. He said to the security guys, let him go. He's with me. And so he turned around and frog marched me right back up the corridor, <laughs> past Stewart's desk. And uh, Tony Stewart's jaw dropped. And I kind of looked, you know, with a sly little grin, but I still wasn't quite confident enough to give him the full finger, you know, but I, by God, I wanted to, I can tell you. So that is how I came to work for Kareng. Yeah. And, <laughs> there and you are. How old, how old were you then in 86? You would have been what, 18, 19? Uh, something like that. 19, I think. Uh, would have been, yeah, I, was not, I would have been 19 when that was happening. I was just turned 19. Yeah. And do, do you remember the... Do you remember the first um, the first thing that uh, Jeff asked you to do for Kerrang? Was it a live review or was it an album review or an interview? I do remember. I vaguely remember that it was a piece. It was I, I was to go and do something on Journey. If I remember correctly, I was sent to Seattle to review Journey and to do an interview Journey for the Raised on Radio record. That's that's the earliest Kerrang recollection of you know an assignment I had, and that was within probably a week or two of getting of getting there yeah, yeah. and the obvi the obvious question that jumps out to me stefan is you were you're that young and how did, did you have trouble getting into the venues because of your age no i didn't actually it's a really good question it's a good question i've never you're the first person who's ever brought it up no <laughs> none at all wow i don't know how it must it must have been my absolutely horrendous weird al yankovic mustache and, uh, <laughs> and hair that convinced them that I was uh, a species far older than I actually was. Um, yeah. I do remember my first ever trip to uh, to America with Sounds was uh, the end of 84. Uh, I think it was literally uh, December 84, going right to January 85, somewhere in there. I do remember as we came through, as we came through customs, remember they asked the photographer if he had any drugs, and they asked me if I had any food, which I took a tremendous affront to because I thought they were calling me a fat bastard. <laughs> and uh, I said something along the lines of, couldn't you ask me if I've got any drugs as well? And the guy just looked at me and he said, this is the U.S. Customs. You don't crack drugs here. And I was like, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I was young. Oh, that was, what, 16, 17 then. So anyway. Yeah. So so when, when you got the journalist visa, were you going back and forth or did you just move over to the state? No. No, I just came over. I got, this is what I did. I got two suitcases. I went to New York. I went to a hotel for a few nights called the Milford Plaza, which I knew because I'd stayed there before in assignments. I thought it was like the Dorchester or like, you know, the, the, the Mandarin Oriental. It was actually a shithole, but I, I thought I was in the lap of luxury, right? Because I mean, how many hotels that I stayed at at that point. And I had booked a Greyhound ticket to go from New York to New Mexico, where I planned to meet UFO, who very kindly at the time agreed that I could ride their bus from New Mexico into San Francisco. And I'd write a few words and get it in one of the, one of the papers, you know, and, uh, cause I knew Phil, I knew Phil Bog from, from just being around London and so on and so forth. So, and so that's what I did. I ended up, I got a Greyhound bus across the country and uh, and I met up with UFO in okay. New Mexico, and I spent the last two weeks, which you know, it's just great. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, they were big, so, big. They were big drinkers at that time. Well, one can most certainly say there wasn't a you know there wasn't a dry throat in the house. I will <laughs> say that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I, my eyes were wide open. I mean, look, I was 
I was, you know, I was as green as a proverbial field. You know, I mean, it's just like, good lord. I mean, I oh, look. I'll give you an example. I remember running into some, uh, you know, attractive blonde Arizonan woman who, you know. I mean, I think it must have been a bit of a graduate, a bit of a Mrs. Robinson thing. But she's, you know, repeatedly not really noticing that she's thrusting my head towards her chest. Um, and so, and she said to me, I, I swear to God, I, it's almost embarrassing. She said to me at one point, she said, yeah, why don't you pop back and we can have some dinner? I don't live far from here. And I said, oh, it's okay. I said, they've got catering. You can have dinner here if you want for free. I mean, unbelievable, the naivety. You know, I look back. <laughs> anyway, she ruffled my head like I was a little dog. Like, you know, like, ah, oh, you know, bless him. You know what I mean? Yeah. But there was all sorts going on on that. But yeah, so yes, quite a time. Yeah, so when you got there, because you were based in the States and not in the UK, you would have had really your pick of what you were going to write about, or or would they actually send you off to, to different places? How did that actually work? Well, it's, it's interesting. I would generally, once I started to feel my way through things, um, I would pitch them on a lot of stuff, you know, because there's a lot of stuff happening. Um, you know, I, I, for example... Uh, you know, I, was, I saw Faith No More very early um, there, so, you know, that was an instant one. You know, the Bay Area thrash scene was growing very quickly, uh, so I was right there for that. You know, Slayer was happening, um, and, you know, I, I'd run, I, I was meeting a lot of people at the beginning of their quote-unquote ascension, if you will, so it was a good time for me in that sense, and I could just bring these stories to Kareem. So, for example, I found myself in New York and hanging out with Rick Rubin and, and all the uh, Def Jam, seemed to be Deaf American stuff, um, you know, and, and getting into that circle, which was very, you know, which is great for my, you know, my assignments, so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, so kind of a self-propelling, you know, and then... Um, what was interesting was I picked up an American magazine called Rip, with, uh, which was edited by Lon Friend, mm -hmm. a really good guy. Um, and so I suddenly started picking up assignments to go the other way, to go, I would be sent on assignments back to England <laughs> or to Europe to do stories for Rip by American record labels. Um, and then later on, I would, the same would happen. I wrote for a couple of wider genre publications like Ray Gun and Bikini and stuff. Um, and that was happening then as well. So for a while there, I was, you know, I was, yeah, it was getting assignments to go all over the place from, you know, magazines of different continents. I mean, it was, it, it, it happened pretty quickly in that regard. It's yeah. quite seamless. Yeah. How, how did, um, how did Jeff and Dante feel about you writing for the competition for want of a better word? Like you said, you were writing for Rip. And like they were in competition with Kerrang at the time. Well, I think that there was an implicit understanding that number one, yeah, you know, one thing, you know, that Dante, I, I, you know, I was Jeff was my main editor, and uh, uh, for, you know, I think Dante had moved on at that point to, to other things. Um, yeah, you know, one thing you must know about Jeff Barton is he was just incredibly, incredibly fair. And, you know, incredibly supportive. I mean, really, you know, don't, I, you know, well, I don't think I'll ever come across a better editor. I mean, he just knew exactly how it worked. And so it was never really spoken about. I think there was a level of trust. Um, I didn't, I tried very hard not to give the same story to each mag. I'd try and find different flavors for, for each, you know, and Kerrang!, you know, if Kerrang gave me the commission, Kerrang would get the best piece. And, you know, Rip would get another piece that was still good, but, you know what I mean, if I had to make a choice. And conversely, sometimes Rip got me the assignment, and so then Kerrang, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there was always a, enough material to generate good pieces. Yeah, and P.S., I would syndicate as well. Sometimes the story would go to Germany, Japan, you know, Italy, whatever, <laughs> the U.S. And, uh, and the U.K., and here's the truth. When you're not on salary, or we weren't on salary as we weren't, freelancers had to make a living. Yeah. So you can't turn around and say to someone, we can't do, you know, don't do this, don't do that. I mean, you have to, you know, there's a living to be made. But, you know, I always felt that I had to invest a high degree of integrity in the copy I turned over, and I had to work as hard as I can to make sure there were two great stories for every assignment 
that I went on that I was going to give to two magazines, you know, and I didn't really want them to be exactly the same. Uh, as to the point of Rip being competition for Kerrang, I don't really see it. I mean, I think there was a certain amount of uh, crossover at the Tower Records import uh, bin, but I think beyond that, I think there is a hardcore following of 50,000 or whatever Kerrang readers who never, you know, they they thought, you know, a rip was, was you know, a hole in your trousers or something. They didn't know it was a magazine. I mean, they really didn't. So yeah. I'm not so sure the competition aspect was that big. Now, you, you mentioned Fate No More there. You were in early on them. Was that with Chuck Mosley or was that with Mike Patton in the beginning? Yes. No, 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 Chuck. no, with Chuck Mosley. I was, I was in in 1986 with them and... Uh, yeah, yeah. So that was that was a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, were there personalities as disparate as people make it make them out to be? Like, were there really five really different guys? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they were. <laughs> yeah. Cause... I mean, every, you know, it's, it's what it says on the tin. I mean, I don't know if you ever had the chance to read anything I wrote about them. But, yeah, you've, I know uh, you did a lot of in, was... a lot of pieces on them. A lot of pieces on them, and uh, I think that it was exactly as you would have seen it. They're very, very different. They were, you know, yeah. It was a volatile mixture, but frankly, I think, you know, you could say that some of the best bands need to have that cocktail in order to, to be what they are. And I, I always felt that their, their golden period was, you know, probably sadly for them, you know, because nobody wants to be fighting all the time, right? But uh, sadly for them, I think it was during... You know, they they, re they relied very heavily on the internal combustion that would occur between these disparate personalities. Uh, to you know, they relied on that to create the material, I think, yeah. Yeah, and I remember them very early on being on the, the cover of Kerrang! Was that, can you remember, was that one of your uh, features? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I don't know which cover you're referring to. It's the cover of Jim Martin... Uh, to cover with the guitarist with the blue light behind him. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was mine. Yeah, that was my cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I, I mean, look, I was definitely in on, I mean, as, as much as we all, you know, uh, you can never be too propertorial because there are many, you know, there's a lot of cooks in these kitchens, but that was a band that I absolutely was championing from yeah. the very beginning. So, yeah. And yeah. You, you said you were there early on in the trash metal scene in, in San Francisco. Yeah. Like, were Metallica yeah. your favourite Band from that from that scene at the time, or were you a fan of all of them? Oh no, I think I mean look as you know the first review as I said earlier I'd ever done was of Ride the Lightning. You know, um, we'd had the demo tape had come through Kingston upon Thames, Surbiton area back in 1982. So they were they were absolutely my band. I mean, I'd actually here's something I'd actually gone to LA to do a story on them for Master of Puppets when they were mixing there. Uh, when I was at Sounds, and I'd come back and I plucked up the courage to go up to Tony Stewart and say, I really think you should put this band on the cover. And he basically told me to fuck off. He didn't say it in so many words, but he basically, you know, tried to make an idiot of me and tell me I didn't know anything. And if I did, Huskadoo was going to be the future and so on and so forth. And, <laughs> you know, I slunk, I slunk away, you know, feeling very demoralized at that point and realized that was actually the moment at which I thought I have to go you know, and, and I have to move. And so somewhere in there, when they came back over, Metallica went, came over, I think maybe, in, I can't remember, sometime that spring to do promotion, I ran into the Music Foundations and I told, I was telling them that I was going to move to the Bay Area, you know, because that's why I had somewhere to stay for free. And, and Cliff Burton was very, very gracious and said, well, fantastic, you know, yeah, yeah. you're telling good. Call me, I'll show you around. And so he did. Nice. He, did. he showed me a, yeah, yeah, he was a, a host, and that's how I met Jim Mardin, and that's how I met a bunch of people. Yeah. So, yeah. No, no, I spoke yeah. to I spoke to Malcolm. Um, you know, one of the things he mentioned about Kerrang, one of the vi vivid memories he had was where he was when he was when he found out that Cliff died, and he said he was in yeah. in a bar with Scott Ian in London, and I asked Xavier yeah. the same question. He said he was somewhere in the states. Can you remember where you were yeah. when you found out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can. I've. I've um, I mean, I was in San Francisco. I was, uh, I, I, I actually got a phone call. I don't know how I got it. Um, I don't know why I got it, but I got it from someone who knew that uh, me and Jim had got to know each other over a short period of time because Cliff had been hanging out with me and introducing me to Jim and his brother Lawrence. 
uh, Lou Martin, and uh, I got a call telling me it had happened, um, and would I please tell Jim? And so I I spoke to Jim, and I said, I don't know how to say this, but Chris, Chris dead, he died in an accident. And uh, and Jim said, you know, bummer, and, and hung up. And uh, I think it, it hit everyone very hard, you know. Uh, so we, you know, those of us who were in the Bay Area, you know, we, we, we got together and, uh, you know, and had a drink and, or, you know, many. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was very strange. I mean, I think a lot of us as well are very, very young. So, you know, when something that hard hits people that young, you know, there's a, it's a, it's a really, really weird, it's a really weird thing. It's a very weird mixture. I mean, death's weird at any time, you know, yeah. but that was, you know, and it seems so, so long ago now as well. And then at other times you're just like, wow, you know, yeah. I can remember certain things like it was yesterday, but yeah, so I remember it. It was, it was, you know, it was incredibly tough. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, do you do you remember um, when you first started with Kerrang? And of course, you you went up to do all you go up to interview a band or something, and you meet a PR person that they'd look at you how old you were, and they they mightn't take it as seriously as you felt they should have. Did Did you ever get that impression at all from anyone? You know, I you know I actually didn't. I was I've got to say every PR that I ever dealt with was brilliant. They were really good to me, and they really I think they were tickled by the fact I was that young. Um, but I was very professional as well. I mean, I made damn sure that, you know, you wouldn't have known my age unless you asked me, you know what I mean? So, I mean, I wasn't going around getting arsehole every five seconds either. So, you know, I, I think I had a good reputation. Um, but no, no, I didn't. They were very good. Uh, what I do remember was early on in the U S a few PRs would say, wow, you remind me of Cameron Crowe. I had no idea Cameron Crowe was, and I was later to find out, um, of course, that he was, you know, the almost famous dude, right? So, yeah. you know, as as was told to me when that film came out, they said, wow, this is kind of like your life, except yours would be the heavy metal version, yeah. and without marrying a member of Heart and being a millionaire. So, you know, those 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 small details aside, it's exactly the same story. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just those minor details, you know, so... Yeah. No, so like as time went on, you'd obviously get the bigger features. You'd go on the road with the bands. Is there any particular long road trip you had that stands out to you that it was like incredible or yeah, or, or, well, or bad, yeah. one or the other? Well, there's loads aren't there. Okay, I'll give you a couple. I mean, look, I'll give you a couple of really good ones. Uh, I did a story with Death Angel in 1988 and I'd hooked up with uh, my good friend uh, photographer Mark Lealoha and we would do assignments together which was also a fairly new thing that you would actually look to pair your writer you know, that a writer and photographer would look to pair together mm -hmm. as opposed to being assigned to each other to go and do something Mark and I would work together on our pitches and work together as a team almost which I think was you know we, we got a lot of work like that
Best Angels one was brilliant because it was three, three weeks in Europe. We got to the other end. The band obviously we flew over with. Uh, the manager at the time had no idea we meant to be there. Um, so we basically were fucked over from the start. The only way we were able to, going to be able to make the trip through Europe with them was if we could go and liberate 2,000 or 2,200 T-shirts that they had sitting in customs that nobody had done the paperwork for. Um, you know, if we could get those shirts and if we sold them, they, you know, the, the management said, well, then you can kind of put yourself up, you know, you can take some money for hotels and you can, you know, whatever, yeah. and you can do it that way. So like, well, okay, I guess we can sell some t-shirts. It can't be that hard. Um, I very nearly, I, I hated the tour manager. The tour manager was such a wanker <laughs> that I, I, I very, I, I actually on the ferry over, remember saying to Mark, if this, if this cunt speaks to me one more time, I'm going to just fucking go nuke. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to kick the shit out of him. And so we had to hire a car so as I wouldn't get into a fight with him because he was uh. such a white case. So unhelpful. Um, and this is before the EU uh, yeah, open borders. So you're going through every fucking customs plant, you know, every border, having to do tariffs and so on and so forth. Uh, we still managed to make, uh, as I believe, uh, I think we still managed to make 16 grand for the band after our expenses, which was pretty good considering we had about fucking 300 size small and medium shirts, which I mean, <laughs> they can't, you're not going to, you know, it's kid sizes for, you know, a death angel shirt. It's not going to go over really. Yeah. Um, you know, but I remember at one point on that tour, there was a one-legged glass-eyed, oh, sorry, I'll, uh, uh, that's it, a glass-eyed roadie with a broken arm and a sling. <laughs> that's right. It's unbelievable. Um, I think the singer got, I think Mark got arrested at one point. I chipped my tooth on a pizza. There's a sort of stupid shit happening. Yeah. Like Mark, Mark got his head trodden on into a barrier when he was taking photographs. And so his head lifted and he just had, I mean, he just looked like he had a giant ass crack in the middle of his forehead, like just wow. spurting blood. It was really something. That was a, so that was a funny trip. That was really pretty funny. Yeah. Um, you know, Rock in Rio was a really good one. So a lot of weird shit happened there. A lot of fun stuff. And when are we talking? Who 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 was on the Nineteen ninety one. Guns and Roses. Ah. Guns and Roses. Judas Priest. Yeah. I was down there with Faith No More. Um, There's two weeks. Uh, two weeks there. That was that was that was pretty crazy. Um, There's a lot of strange stuff going on there. Really enjoyed uh, doing uh, one of the Judas Priest. One of the first Judas Priest features after the trial in Reno ended. Oh wow! Um, was uh, on the Painkiller tour. And it was coming back through Reno. Uh, so that was a pretty good one. That was pretty memorable. Um, you know, a lot of memorable Metallica stories. I mean, loads of, I mean, there's too many to get into now, but I think an obvious one would be, you know, being on the Guns N' Roses Metallica tour. Yeah. It's really good stuff. Uh, yeah. I mean, those are ones that leap to mind. And then, of course, then I got to start working with Ozzy. I worked with Ozzy for six years on a variety of writing projects and that was with that was primarily through rip rip had assigned me to do a, a monthly diary with ozzy yeah. um so i traveled all over with him for quite some time and it was you know it was really good stuff he was he was he was he was great yeah one, really one, of, one of the things really. i've always heard about ozzy is um he's never really changed even with all the success he's the same guy uh, yeah i i i i think i i Love him to death. Really, one of the one of the funniest men I have ever met. I genuinely funny. I mean, genuinely brilliant sense of humour. And I, yeah, I loved him. I thought he was great. I mean, you know, I, I really, really enjoyed every minute I spent with him. And and you know, Sharon is a fierce protector of her family, and I think that's great too. And she's, you know, whatever anyone says about them, you know, they're still, they're still there. They're still together. There's, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of love and appreciation there. And I think that they're, they're, they're very unique, you know, and they, they, you know, they were very good to me. So yeah, I had a very good time. Yeah. yeah. Is, is, so, what, what was the weirdest interview you ever did? Xavier said there was one he did with Celtic Frost and he ended up going into this black room with a skull and all that. What was the weirdest interview you did? Is it one that stands out? What's the definition of weird? What are you looking for? Um, um, whatever was supposed to happen didn't happen at all. 
Well, I went to talk to Ginger Baker when he was in Master of Reality, and uh, and and I started to ask him a question, and he just looked at me, and he said, "When did they invent you?" And he <laughs> said, "Ah, oh, yes, that's right." And he just started like he just started, to, uh, he, yeah, beat me at the knees. Talk about how all music journalists are basically wankers. You know, all of that sort of stuff. But I just turned the tape recorder off. I said, look, I said, I'm not being funny. I'm just trying to, like, do a story here, trying to get, you know, trying to get some information, trying to get some good quotes. If you don't want to do this, let's just call it quits. Why don't we just say no? And we'll stop. I'll save you the time. But I don't appreciate the rudeness. I'm not being rude to you. You know, I'm just trying to do my gig. And, in fairness, he did sort of grumble Okay, you know, we got on with it. That was pretty strange. Uh, it was strange following Meatloaf for three states and two days, trying to do a Korean cover story, and then ending up having, like, you know, we're doing it so close to the deadline that we literally had an hour to, to write up the story and send it so as it would make the print. That yeah. was pretty strange. And he was not particularly pleasant when we finally got around to doing the interview. I think we're chasing him across the Midwest and the PR was with us and, you know, you're just looking at him and you're thinking, my God, like, why won't you just sit down and do this? Um, I can't think of any particularly strange locations. Um, I've been in some, I mean, probably the creepiest place if you're, if you're, I don't know if that was, you know, the Celtic Frost reference was, you know, that was a creepy one, but yeah. I suppose creepy... I suppose, you know, I mean, Geiger's house, H.R. Geiger's house, but I love his work, so that was dark, and there are a lot of skulls and lots of amazing art around all over the walls, and, you know, that was pretty labyrinth-like, but, I mean, I enjoyed it, so I wasn't scared. Yeah. Did you ever do an interview that was, like, mind-numbingly boring, and there was nothing there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did one with Earl Slick in 1986. It was so poor that as I left the house, which was in the Hollywood Hills, I took one look at the tape. I had one final thought. I saw a drain, and I literally dropped the cassette down the drain. <laughs> I was so appalled by the interview and everything, and I'd just started. This is in 1986. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I remember speaking to Jeff and saying, I'm oh, sorry, Jeff, it was so awful. I couldn't deal with it. I just put it, in the drain. I just put it down the drain. And he laughed. He goes, Okay, he said, all right, I get it. Yeah. No thought. I mean, had I actually been old enough to think about what I'd done, that could have been fucking myself, you know, out of a job. Yeah. But I was just so, I just wasn't thinking like that. And the interview was so mind-numbingly boring. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, it was, I can't remember why. I just remember it was. And I remember, I have this distinct vision of looking at him and thinking, I'm, I, I can see it right now as I sit here in the back garden of his, like, you know, Mulholland Drive, Hills home, and, and I just can see his mouth moving and me thinking, you are just talking bollocks and I cannot <laughs> turn this around. There's nothing I can do that's going to save this moment uh, and when can I get out of here? And in fairness, he might have been thinking the same, but who knows, you'd have to ask him. Yeah. yeah. Did, did, so, you, did you ever do a piece in Kerrang? that was you probably put the boot in a little bit and it had repercussions for you that the band actually came and gave out about it or did that that ever happen at all yeah no it did I, it was pretty interesting actually i reviewed um uh i was always very careful if i slagged the band off i would definitely say why i would justify i critically justify why i would said something i might have said because I felt it was very important that you not just mindlessly slag someone off. But I did go in pretty hard on Testament in 1987. I remember a live review. And then I was down at the country club in, in LA, in Reseda in LA, which is a famous old heavy metal venue down there, um, which has since, long since closed. Uh, and I was down there, I, thought, I think I was doing it sign on someone. And I've forgotten who, someone I was with, said, he said to me, Chuck Billy's over there from Testament. And he wants to talk to you <laughs> about that review that you did. And I hadn't actually sized up, you know, who Chuck Billy, I, mean, I hadn't taken any of these. I'd seen him play, but we thought about it. You know, but proportionately speaking, Chuck is the size of 
an extremely fit, however, extremely menacing brick shithouse. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I, you know, to boot, you know, this, you know, this full on like American Indian vibe about him. And I mean, he just looks like a monolithic, like he's a monolithic presence. And I went up to him and, uh, I said, Chuck, uh, Stefan Shrezzi, he wanted a word with me. And uh, I don't know if I thought he was going to kick the shit out of me or if I didn't care. I don't know. I think I was, getting, I think I was so young. I just thought, well, fuck it. I might as well just do this, whatever's going to happen. And he just said to me, he said, yeah. He said, I wanted to ask, why did you write that shitty review? You know, and uh, I said, well, that's what I honestly thought. I've seen you play better gigs. And I thought it was really, I didn't think it was a good show. And, so I tried to write that in the review and I said, I'm sorry, man. I, I, I just told it as I saw it. And he kind of, he looked at me and I kind of looked at him and he goes, that's cool, man. And he goes right on. All right. And I was like, yeah, sorry. I said, I'll definitely come and see you again. I said, you know, maybe hopefully it'll be a better gig, you know? And he was like, cool. He goes, come down to the next gig. Love to have you. And so that was, that was that, you know? So that was as close as I got to uh, a repercussion. <laughs> on an assignment uh, they tried to set it up so that I was gonna basically you know in print kick the shit out of Brett Michaels from Poison because I was a uh, quite a well-known um, non-fan of Poison shall we say <laughs> so they sent me to do the assignment and I think they thought it was a fait accompli you know and I think they thought it was like well you're gonna go there and you're gonna just hate him and tear him apart because he's you know he's a whatever he is who he is and you are who you are and I distinctly remember saying to him early in the interview why are you such a poser and I, he looked at me and he said I'm not a poser and let me tell you why and he basically said I you know like Aerosmith I liked all those bands I liked the scarves I liked that kind of look I liked a little bit of makeup whatever he said, so that's what I wear. He said, I would be a poser if I stood here with a Misfits T-shirt and told you I loved the Misfits or, you know, a punk shirt and told you I love punk rock or whatever. He said, that's when I would be posing. He said, but what you're seeing now, that's, that's who I've always been and that's who I always wanted to be and that's who I tried to be in my bedroom and so on and so forth. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Yeah. But this is the point he made. And I just remember looking thinking, fuck me. I, you know, only a fool would argue with that. I just looked at him. I said, you know what? Good for you. You've, you've done me like a kipper. And, you know, you've made me think about things. Good for you. Yeah. And uh, so it wasn't the story they expected, but it was a good story nonetheless. And I think it was, 
I think I think it's well appreciated for that, you know. Yeah. And did you you were asking about another Kerrang? Did you want to? I can't remember the original question. Was there a Kerrang story you were talking about that was memorable? Was that had you asked me that? Yeah. Was there one story that sticks out that was memorable to you? Yeah. 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 I, was, I mean, it's several. But the one that really was the was the one with Kurt Cobain in nineteen ninety three. That was very memorable. I mean, I'd spoken to him a couple of times before, but that was supposedly. Um, so they say it was the last major interview he did was the one with me. Um, in Atlanta on the In Utero tour, and that was pretty intense. I mean, I got to know him. Uh, you know, my my uh, my son's mother was in a punk band, and it was a punk band that he liked. Actually, um, her band's T-shirt is the one he wears in the, on the Unplugged shirt and the Unplugged performance. So, um, you know, we 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 got to know each other a, a little bit as acquaintances, no more than that over the, those few years. And and I'd actually thought that he was well on the way to being okay. Uh, and so when I heard that he was, he, he you know, I remember I was in England for some, when I heard he killed himself. Uh, it was the day before Spurs were playing a relegation survival match at Coventry uh, of all the places, which we nearly lost one nil, but we did still stay up. Um, and uh, I just remember like this news coming through. And then within an hour, I had a call uh, saying that e-television wanted to buy my cassette. They wanted to buy the cassette of the interview. And I, they were offering 14 or 15 grand, which at the time was probably more like 20 now, you know, something yeah. like that. And I just, I just stepped fast and refused. Like, not a chance. I'm like, no. I said, you can read the print. Why don't you want to read the mag? Well, you know, it'd be much better if we could hear it as well, hear him. It's the last thing I'm like, oh, it's not going to happen. Sorry. So it didn't. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. that was memorable for all the wrong reasons there because there's only like three months earlier that we'd done the story three or four months earlier and you know we'd really felt that he was on the mend you know yeah, yeah. So, wow yeah yeah so is was there any particular band that you thought uh you championed for the magazine you thought it'd be huge and they never made it what do you think I, and i'll tell you who, do, who malcolm dawn picked fiona flanagan and Xavier Russell, yeah, yeah, Russell picked Legs Diamond. Probably, yeah, he would have said Legs Diamond as well. <laughs> I kind of think no, because I remember him writing about them. I'm really trying to think if there was a band that I, I'm trying to think it would be in the, be in the mega metal range, I suppose. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I mean, may, uh, yeah, maybe the Four Horsemen might be one. Okay. Um, that's one. Uh, I did champion, but they never quite made it. I suppose, prob uh, yeah, I was never... I ended up doing a big story on them, but they weren't a band I championed. Sea Hags would be another. Um, probably the one band sort of that were kind of glammy and, and, you know, hooky, if you will, that I thought, and I still think probably should have been much bigger than they ever were. It was a band called Vane. Well, Davy Vane's uh, band, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that they were really, I thought they had everything. Yeah. And I really thought they were going to smash it big. And actually, the, the, one other person in the music press is a bigger fan than me, and that person was Jeff Barton. Wow. He fucking loved them as well. And it just never quite happened. So yeah, maybe, maybe I'll stick with them.
Okay. And we'll, we'll... But, I, but I don't mean that. As, I don't want to negatively tarnish them. I still think they're a tremendous band. They just, it didn't happen. And, and that is the arbitrary nature of this thing. Sometimes it doesn't happen, yeah. you know, and there's no logical reason. It, you know, it has little to do with talent. So. Yeah. Yeah, so j- just to wrap it up then, Stefan, um, what made you stop writing for Kerrang! And, and when was that? Uh, let me think. It was the late 90s, I know. and that was the time... What's that? I didn't realise you'd actually been writing for Kerrang! for that long. I, yeah, yeah, it was I, late I, 90s. I stopped buying Kerrang! in the mid-90s. I just didn't like it anymore. Yeah, yeah. I've carried on vaguely. I see, so in 95... Uh, 95, it started to slow down a bit for me, and I started to write a lot more generally uh, for a, a wider range of American magazines about... Massive Attack and, and Goldie and other music. Because I've always liked other music as well. My father raised me listening to a lot of different music when I was very young. Mm. Um, so I'd always had that. And I was enjoying being able to, to write about those bands for America Mags. And, you know, all being taken as more than just a, you know, a hard rock critic. It was nice to spread my wings. and did Dave Bowie interviews, all sorts. Yeah, but I still contributed some pieces to Kerrang! Um, but my official sign-off, it just sort of petered out, really. You know, there's just a certain point at which, you know, there's new people coming in. There, there really are. You know, for a while there, it just didn't feel that I had anything to offer or anything to say. And the truth of the matter is, you know, they weren't exactly, you know, you weren't going to make a living. I wasn't going to make a living with Kerrang! Getting, you know, it's getting older they're not going to up their rate of pay proportionately to reflect your level of skill. It was per word. Mm. And whether you wrote that word as a 16 year old, or whether you wrote that word as a 35 year old, you know, the experience you did get the accumulated in between didn't make a difference. So, you know, I mean, you could probably ride that if you're getting regular commissions of like, you know, a couple of 2,000, 3,000 word pieces and a couple of reviews every week. You know, maybe you could write it out, but that was not happening, and, and neither should it, because you've got to keep... You know, you've got to keep the... Kerrang had to keep quite young. I understand that. Yeah. You, know, you bring in new writers. Um, you know, and right around that time, the late 90s, Metallica asked me... I'd been freelancing for their So What magazine for a few years, and they just said, do you want to come and take it on? You know, we'll give you we'll give you a salary. You can still freelance and do what you do and work from home, but we'll give you we'll give you a salary. Yeah. And you know, it was like fantastic. Thank yeah. you very much. I'll be great. What made him ask you? Do you think? Did you ever ask him? Like, why did they pick you to do that? Well, it was a natural dovetail. I mean, I'd sp- <laughs> I mean, I'd written so I've I've written tons about them over yeah. the years. You know, and I suppose. Um, you know, they, they'd obviously been covered by Xavier and Malcolm in Kerrang! very early, but in terms of every other music publication, Sounds was the first one to write about them. It was the first mainstream music publication to write about them, the Sounds, and that was my, my review of my feature. So I don't think that was forgotten. Uh, and we got on. I mean, we got on very well. I mean, when I, when I first, first few years I was in the Bay Area, I mean, I'd hang out with them a lot and we get absolutely hammered. It was great, great, great times, you know, it's good fun. Yeah. Um, and so they'd always hired me as a freelancer to do all the material for so what. So in a, in a sense, I'd been running it anyway, you know, or writing it anyway. So this was just almost formalizing it. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty natural fit. Yeah. So, so final question for me, do you, do you keep in touch with a lot of the writers from Kerrang or, or have you lost yeah. touch with a lot of them? It's sporadic. I've lost touch with with a fair few of them, and uh, most of them. Paul Elliott, I'm still in touch with, very tightly in touch with Moat. Um, uh, Neil Perry, who uh, was much more sounds than Kerrang, but they are a really good friend of mine. Um, you know, other than that, probably don't keep in touch with people, uh, but always, ha- you know, the 90 percent of people really happy to see when I run into them. Oh, and Crusher, I do keep in touch with Crusher. Yeah, he's a yeah. funny, he's a funny um, guy. Yeah, Crusher's, Crusher's great. 
Yeah. And of course, Ross. You know, uh, I, I see Ross a lot of Ross. Ross Half in yeah. Days he, he does a lot of the Metallica and, photography, doesn't he? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, so we work together on a lot of stuff, and 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 you know, but he and me, he and I have worked a lot of stuff, and I love Ross. He's a, you know, he's a he is the quintessential character. Uh, you better have your brothers up and be ready to go toe to toe with him for a bit. But you know, it's very important with Ross to know. Um, that, you know, there is a great deal of warmth behind it at the end, even though it doesn't always feel like it when you're initially in the firing line. But uh, he's great. Really, really, you know, a lot of fun, very loyal, very enjoyable. So, yeah, I actually see quite a lot of Ross. Yeah, and, excellent. Uh, you know, I don't know if you're going to try and track him down. I, I He would be... Uh, he'd be a good guy. Well, I'd, I'd, lo- I'd love to get him on, but I haven't, I'm, I'm going through the list... I'm trying to get yeah, guys yeah. on, so you, you're the third guy. So I'll, I'll see how. Yeah. They might all say yes, so we'll see how I yeah. do. And Xavier, and Xavier, Xavier as well. Great to see Xavier. You know, uh, uh, whenever I run into Xavier, it's always fun. Uh, you know, there's, yeah. I mean, it's it's. I love running into most people. You know, I'm, I'm pretty. <laughs> yeah. It's not really, not really. I you know, I don't, I don't think I have any enemies and if I do I, they've not made it, made themselves clear to me which is yeah. very pleasant so okay yeah yeah All there right. we go alright Stefan well it's, it's been a pleasure yeah thank you what are you going to be doing with these again no, I, we, I, we're running them, be... we're running them like every month or so we've already we, we do a regular show and we do a project every okay. year and this year's one I decided to do it on Kerrang because I grew up with Kerrang uh. And uh, fantastic! Yeah. I think I'm interviewing Gary Bushell in a couple of weeks about his books on sounds. If you speak to Gary, you know, and Gary knows this, you know, but uh, and I don't know if you're still recording, but if if you are, I hope you can get this in. Yeah, you know, I I owe Gary Bushell a tremendous debt of gratitude uh, because he was literally. Uh, two weeks into his job at Newsgroup International, which was quite a controversial move at the time, and he was being frowned upon by his former peers as being some sort of, quote-unquote, you know, tabloid scum and all this absolute bollocks. They all would have run to that job, mm-hmm. you know. We, 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 yeah, they would have run to that job naked on a hot concrete uh, <laughs> sidewalk, but, you know, to get to, to, to get the chance that he got so yeah. for them to snag him off it was unbelievable but you know this guy number one he's you know he was very very supportive of me um, in the editorial office uh, on several occasions when I was very young um, and he stuck his neck on the line he met me at Charing Cross Station at 8.45 in the morning by the McDonald's in there, that's near there uh, with the letter on headed notepaper that got me my journalist visa and so if it hadn't have been for him doing that I probably wouldn't have been able to get in wow so you know anyone who slags that guy off and says you know he's this and he's that and he's the other you know that to me was a true act of socialism he didn't need to do it but he saw uh, the opportunity to help someone and he took it on himself to do it so you know thumbs up to that bloke P.S one of my favourite writers of all time. Him and Pete Mikowski, both brilliant. What a writer. You know, what a presence. How exciting was he to read? So, you package that off for him and and send him my very, very best, please. Will do. Um, I think that's a good note to end the interview on, Stefan. Very good. I'll let you go. (laughs) Have a good rest of the night and uh, thanks for coming on. Brilliant. Thank All right. you. All right. Thanks, Stefan. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. There you go. Richie's conversation with Stefan Shirazi. And as like I said in the beginning, lots of great stories from that guy. I'm sure we really could have talked to him for a lot longer than we did. But the guy was actually very busy that night. So it was very cool of him to take as much time as he did to uh, talk to Richie. So again, big thanks to Stefan Shirazi for coming on Focus on Metal and being a part of our 2017 Kerrang! Magazine project. So Kerrang! Number three is done. I know that uh, Richie has got... Uh, a lot of feelers out to a bunch of other people. We've had some great cooperation with people we've had on so far, getting the word out to uh, be a part of this project. So I know that very soon, Kerrang! Number 4 will be in your little metal ear holes. But for now, that one is it for this episode. Thanks again for listening to Focus on Metal. And as always, you can keep up with us at focusonmetal.net. 
focusonmetal.blogspot.com. You can hit Richie up on Facebook. In fact, you can hit up Stefan Chirazzi on Facebook. And you can also follow us on Twitter. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, as always, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant.